turning to our uh, illustrious speaker, um, it gives me great pleasure today to introduce uh, Dr. Hugo Meyer, who is the CNRS Research Fellow at the Centre for International Studies at Sciences Po in Paris. He is also the founding director of the European Initiative for Security Studies, which for those of you who haven't come across it, it's a multidisciplinary network of scholars that share the goal of consolidating uh, security studies in Europe. It's a, it's a really great initiative and I encourage you to check it out. Uh, he's also the Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Security Diplomacy and Strategy in Brussels and an Honorary Researcher at the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. His research interests lie at the intersection of foreign policy analysis and security studies and he's currently working on several research projects on uh, first the reconfiguration of American hegemony through the prism of US-led regional alliance systems in Europe and in the Asia-Pacific since the end of the Second World War. Second, national defence and security policies in Europe, and third, European and foreign uh, European foreign and security policies in the face of a rising China in the post Cold War period. He is the author of three Oxford University Press books, which is quite an achievement. Uh, first, in 2016, uh, the trading with the enemy: the making of U.S. export control policy towards the PRC. Second, in 2018. Uh, the Handbook of European Defence Policies and Armed Forces, which was co-edited with Marco Wist. Uh, and third, um, which is coming out this year, I believe, in uh, the next couple of months, uh, we have Awakening to China's Rise, European Foreign and Security Policies Towards the PRC. He has also published in top journals such as International Security, the Journal of Strategic Studies, Cooperation and Conflict, Survival, the European Journal of International Security, and the Journal of Cold War Studies. And he'll be speaking to us today about uh, articles, uh, which was uh, co-authored with Stephen Brooks, who I'm pleased to see has joined us on the line from Dartmouth uh, in international security, uh, which is Illusions of Autonomy, Why Europe Cannot Provide for Its Security If the United States Pulls Back. Over to you, Hugo. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thanks, Will, <clears throat> and thanks a lot for the invitation. It's really a great pleasure to be here. <clears throat> I really want to thank the Center for the invitation. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to present uh, this article uh, in, front of, uh, in front of such a distinguished audience. So let me share my PowerPoint. There you go. Okay, can you see it? Yeah, awesome. Okay, sorry. So the article I'm presenting today is titled Illusions of Autonomy, Why Europe Cannot Provide for Its Security If the United States Pulls Back. Uh, this article um, I co-authored with Steve Brooks, who is in the audience with us, and I'm sure Steve might uh, jump in during the Q&A. We've worked on this article for more than uh, two years, so actually two years and a half, so it's been a lot of work. Um, but in the meeting, we also had fun. We had coffees and writing sessions in fancy Parisian cafes. We went to Jens concerts. So it was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun. And um, actually, the article was published in 2021 in International Security as a lead article of the spring issue. And we had before that published um, an article in Survival, which focused on a small discrete aspect of the larger argument. And that was in a forum in which uh, we critically assessed together with other authors um, Barry Posen's view on European defense. And I'm sure we'll get back to that. But so 
what is the premise of this article in international security? The premise is that Europe's security landscape has changed dramatically in the past decade because of three main reasons. First of all, you've seen growing concerns vis-a-vis -vis Russian assertiveness. Today, Russia is far strong militarily than it was 10 years ago. And we've seen in 2014 with the crisis on Crimea and, and Ukraine and with the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, the territorial, territorial revisionism is back on the continent. Secondly, you also see growing concerns in, among Europeans over the credibility of US commitments to the continent. Um, subsequent US administration have recurrently criticized Europeans for not doing enough on defense, the issue of burden sharing, and also the US pivot to Asia raised concerns among Europeans over the long-term um, credibility and robustness of the transatlantic alliance. And of course, these concerns have been further fueled under the Trump administration. And it is true that under Biden administration, um, there have been attempts at sort of restoring and reinvesting in US alliance globally and in Europe. But it's also true that the polarization of US domestic politics means that these shifts in priority run deeper than a single administration. And the third trend, which is linked to these previous two, is that Europeans have called in recent years ever more to, uh, for greater strategic autonomy. You've seen that in 2016 with the EU global strategy, and then with subsequent initiatives like PESCO, the European Defence Fund. This really shows that more than ever, Europeans want to pursue strategic autonomy. And in light of these three trends, the central question that we raise in the article is, could Europeans develop an autonomous defense capacity if there were a complete US withdrawal from Europe? This is really our overarching question. And I'll get back to why we focus specifically on a complete US withdrawal in a minute. The central finding of the article is the following. We conclude that any European effort to achieve strategic autonomy will be hampered by two major constraints. The first one is what we call strategic cacophony, namely profound continent-wide divergences across all the domains of national defense policies, most notably threat perception. And the second one is severe defense capacity shortfalls that will be hard to close because of four interwoven challenges. Uh, there's the mic which is open thank you sorry but i couldn't hear anything otherwise so and these two constraints strategic cacophony and severe defense capacity shortfalls mutually reinforce one another and together they impose a rigid limit on the capacity of europeans to achieve strategic autonomy anytime soon I can get back to the definition of strategic autonomy we use in the article if uh, somebody is interested in the audience uh, later. And so to substantiate this argument, what I'm going to talk about today is, first of all, the role of Europe in the grand strategy debate in the US and um, essentially the debate over uh, whether the US should remain engaged in Europe or should pull out. Secondly, I'll address these two fundamental constraints to European strategic autonomy, again, strategic cacophony and defense capacity shortfalls. Thirdly, uh, we'll critically assess the counter argument which could be put forward that by restrained scholars and actually has uh, been put forward by some scholars. And I'll critically evaluate um, 
this counter argument. And I will conclude by uh, briefly discussing what can Europeans do about all that. Okay, so let's look at the evolving US presence in Europe and the role of Europe in the grand strategy debate. As I'm sure you're all aware, um, ever since the founding of the US up until World War II, detachment from European security affairs has been a or was a if not the defining feature of US security policies. It's really with World War II and the early Cold War that you see a major turning point. The US decides to engage and be present on the European continent, mostly in order to keep the Soviet Union out and to keep Germany down. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, the US chose to continue and sustain this relationship and to maintain NATO. Uh, however, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, it also cuts its presence in Europe drastically. And here we got the data from the US Department of Defense. And you can see that between 1990 and 2019, uh, the drastic reduction has been from 350,000 troops to 65,000 troops today. So it's a massive decrease. However, US scholars, uh, those in the restraint uh, camp essentially, um, who argue that even this presence no longer serves US interests and the US should completely withdraw from the continent. And so one of the two main sides in the grand strategy debate in the US is the restraint camp. And again, they argue for um, withdrawal uh, pullback of the US from the European continent. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the deep, those advocating US deep engagement, and they argue that the, there are security and non-security benefits for US to continue its security presence in Europe. And this argument has been most fully and in the most sophisticated manner put forward in the book America Abroad, which was uh, co-authored by Steve Brooks and uh, together with William Wolfers. Interestingly, however, uh, the perspective of the restrained scholars is not uniform at all when it comes to different regions. So, for instance, on the Middle East, some argue for complete US withdrawal from the region. Other uh, think that it would be best to have a limited onshore military presence, so to re reduce US presence, but to maintain a limited onshore presence. And if you look at the Asia Pacific, the positions in the restraint camp diverge even more. So for some, the US should quickly withdraw and completely. For others, there should be a gradual withdrawal, but the US should maintain some form of extended nuclear deterrence in the Asia Pacific. And yet others like Mersheimer and Walt think that the US should continue its aligned commitments and its US presence across the region. And they therefore here converge with the deep engagement uh, folks. And therefore you really see that it's Europe which today is the fulcrum of the grand strategy debate. All the proponents of deep engagement <clears throat> think that the US should stay, and all the advocates of restraint think that the US should leave. But why exactly, you may ask, do the restrained scholars think that the US should leave? Um, so some of the, the, the biggest name in the camp of restraint, who actually includes almost 50 or even more scholars in the US. So take Stephen Walt, uh, John Mersheimer and uh, Barry Posen here in the pictures. They argue that European states are big enough and rich enough to autonomously ad address the military threat from Russia, which in their view is the main security problem in Europe today. 
And they base this argument largely on three main indicators, which is combined GDP of these European states, their population, and their defense spending. And um, therefore, Stephen Wolf, for instance, argues that the notion that the European Union lacks the wherewithal to defend itself against Russia is risible. And Barry Posen similarly argues that um, a coalition of any two of the principal Western European powers, Germany, France, and Britain, could easily balance Russia. So this is really the central argument of the restraint camp. And I might add, as I mentioned before with Will, that uh, we'll have a large conversation on these issues together with Barry Posen, Steve Walt, and John Mershamian and, and others at a round table at the um, conference of uh, the International Studies Association in March. But so, this is also why in the article we focus on a specific scenario, which is a complete US withdrawal from Europe. And there are two main reasons for uh, focusing on this specific scenario. The first one is that this is exactly the scenario favored by the restraint scholars. And so we start from their policy proposal. And this allows us to probe their assumption, namely that Europe can quickly and easily create an effective deterrent to Russia if the US pulls back. And thereby, the goal is also, hopefully, to advance the grand strategy debate. And the second reason is that the complete US withdrawal from Europe would be a shock, and therefore would be the strongest possible incentive that could drive Europeans to pursue strategic autonomy. It's, in other words, the best way to assess their capacity to develop an autonomous defense. And in fact, if even the major shock of a US complete withdrawal is unlikely to move Europeans away from their uh, strategic cacophony and capability shortfalls, well, the partial US withdrawal, which of course is a more likely scenario, is even less likely to push them in that direction. Okay, so what does this look like in practice? Well, in practice, this means that the US withdraws all of its forces and military units from Europe, it pulls out all its personnel, which is currently assigned to the NATO command structure. It pulls out all the conventional forces across the continent, permanent and rotational. And it also pulls out all its European-based nuclear weapons. So it's the complete withdrawal of the US from the continent. And you may say, well, but this is pretty unlikely. Yes, but. So of course, um, such scenario is unlikely in the short term. But it's hardly implausible in the longer term uh, because of both domestic and international dynamics. So if you look at the dynamics at the international structural level in the international system, <clears throat> you see that the rise of China and the growing strategic centrality of the Asia-Pacific region has led already the US to downgrade the importance of Europe in its grand strategy. And this is likely to continue all the more China becomes more powerful and that Asia becomes more central to international politics. And at the domestic level, there are a couple of points. Well, first of all, the US, as I mentioned, has pursued an isolationist grand strategy for most of its history. And so leaving Europe would simply be a return to its traditional foreign policy baseline vis-a-vis -vis the region. And secondly, Trump, in fact, only tapped in. He did not create the political momentum uh, for curtailing US presence in the region. There are polls that already in the early 2010s uh, showed that there was a majority of Americans in favor of an American withdrawal from Europe. And you also already had Republicans and Democrats uh, in Congress 
pushing and advocating for such withdrawal. And a last point here is keep in mind that you could have an active decision to fully withdraw from the continent, but you also have the drifting away scenario, which is that the US and Europe would drift gradually further apart over years and years, and that NATO uh, formally still exists, but in fact is completely hollowed out of any substance. So that's also a scenario. All right, so this is the initial scenario. Our argument is that you have these two overarching constraints, strategic cacophony and capability shortfalls. Let's look at the first one. Strategic cacophony, again, really refers to profound continent-wide divergences in the threat assessments of European states and therefore in their strategic priorities. Uh, a key piece of background to keep in mind here, and that's really important, is that the threat environment in Europe has significantly significantly diversified since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So look at the Cold War. During the Cold War, you had one overarching common threat to all Europeans, and that was the Soviet Union. The fear was a land invasion and the risk of escalation to nuclear war. Of course, there were some differences between Europeans, but they were largely muted by the looming common overarching Soviet threat. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, we enter in an area which basically lost into throughout the 1990s up until the late 2000s. And that's an area of strategic exception in the sense that there's no major conventional security threats on the continent. And that's pretty rare in European history. And in the meantime, you have a diversification of the threat environment in the sense that the threat assessment of governments nationally shift away from conventional state threats to non-conventional threat, precisely because it's in this era of strategic exception, you don't have a major conventional threat on the continent. And so they focus ever more on terrorism, instability in the Mediterranean, uh, in the Balkans, uh, migration, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, failed states. And so as these threats assessments diverge, you have more and more discrepancy between the national threat assessments. And in fact, Russia's resurgence in the 2010s further compounds this uh, state of affairs. Uh, after the um, 2014 annexation of Crimea, um, so you have some states who be become more and more concerned by Russia, and this further, but other don't actually. And so this further deepens the disagreements among Europeans about how to prioritize between Russia and other security challenges. And this is exactly what we've tried to do in the article. It's really to provide the most systematic coding of national threat perception across 29 European countries to date. To do so, we adopted the nested approach. Uh, first of all, we coded the threat evaluations by 18 experts um, in a comprehensive examination uh, of European defense policies, namely a book which I co-edited with Marco Weiss that was the a Handbook of European Defense Policies and Armed Forces. That's a huge book of 950 pages, 60 chapters, more than 50 authors. And we, building upon that, we coded the threat evaluations of these 18 experts. And of course, we double-checked with them. The second step was to gather and analyze all the available national government reports across all of Europe on regional threat environments and prioritization among threats. So national security strategies, intelligent threat assessments, etc. For most countries in Europe, these two steps were 
sufficient to have a robust and reliable coding. For some, it was slightly more ambiguous, and so we proceeded to a third step, which was to interview senior foreign and defense policy officials in order to gain further clarity in their national threat assessment. And here is the result. Essentially, we recode all the national threat perceptions across Europe along five categories. And these five categories differ in terms of the threat level, which is uh, given to Russia as compared to other threats. So the first one is those countries for whom Russia is unimportant or not a threat, and they focus on different uh, security challenges like instability in the Mediterranean or terrorism. The second category is Russia is perceived as a threat, but still other threats are more significant in the Mediterranean again, or um, terrorism, for instance. For some countries, Russia and other threats have roughly equal significance. The fourth category is Russia is the highest threat, but still one is concerned by other security challenges nevertheless. And then you have the extreme of the spectrum, which is those countries for whom Russia is the dominant threat by far, and other challenges have little, if any, importance. So let's see a little bit the strategic cacophony. For these countries that you see highlighted, mostly in Southern Europe and Southeastern Europe, but also uh, elsewhere, like in Ireland, Russia is unimportant and is, or it's not a threat. For these countries, the central concern is really regional instability in the Middle East, in Northern Africa, the larger Mediterranean region, uh, for some also migration and terrorism. So these are the central security concerns. Yet another group of states consider that Russia is a threat, but still other threats are more significant. Um, here, the main country is France, but you also have uh, Austria, Croatia and Switzerland in this category. And so if you take France, uh, it's in, uh, Paris is increasingly concerned by Russian behavior in the east, but its central uh, region of strategic priority is the Mediterranean and Northern Africa, and specifically actually sub-Saharan Africa, also because of post-colonial times, of course. For some countries, Russia, as I said, is, has roughly equal significance as terrorism or as regional instability in the Middle East and Northern Africa. And here the main countries would be the Netherlands, uh, sorry, uh, Germany and the United Kingdom, but also includes Belgium, Denmark and the Netherlands. And then if you take some of the countries in Central Eastern Europe and in Northern Europe, for them, Russia is the higher threat. So really their main security concern is Russia, but still, they have substantial focus and a, a key strategic priority for them is also other concerns like the Mediterranean or um, terrorism. And finally, you have a small group of countries, mostly small countries, um, for whom Russia is the dominant threat by far. And this includes the Baltics, but also Finland and Poland. And so here you go. This is Europe's strategic cacophony. And a key point to keep in mind here is that this is an enduring constraint. Uh, this cacophony of threat perceptions is really shaped by the history of each country, by the politics, by geography, and also by the local sub-regional strategic environment. So this is not something that can change easily. It's really an enduring constraint. And this is just to show you the table actually, which is presented in the article, and I'll get back to this table uh, later on. The second major constraint 
um, to uh, European strategic autonomy is its profound defense capacity shortfalls. And these capacity shortfalls, in fact, are exacerbated by the strategic cacophony. And just essentially the large problem here is that since the end of the Cold War, there has been a sharp decline in European defense capabilities. Just take one example. In 2011, you had the NATO intervention in Libya. And in that intervention, um, Europeans displayed severe shortages of many systems like key enablers, air-to-air -air refueling, suppression of enemy air defenses, intelligence target acquisition and recognizance capabilities, and all these capabilities which they lacked had to be provided for by the US. And so the central argument here on uh, of the article is that Europeans face four major challenges that hinder their capacity to develop autonomous conventional defense capabilities. The first challenge is the lack of weapon systems for conventional deterrence and defense. The second challenge is the growing complexity of employing modern weapon systems. Then you have the difficulty of institutionalized military cooperations among Europeans. And finally, the fragmentation of Europe's defense industrial base. Let's look at each one of them briefly. So if you take the lack of weapon systems for conventional deterrence and defense, during the Cold War, Europeans really invested heavily in these capabilities for conventional defense. Why? Because as I said, the Soviet Union was the overarching common threat to all Europeans. And the fear was land invasion by the Soviet Union, uh, leading potentially to nuclear war. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, defense spending plummeted in Europe. Countries shifted away from territorial defense, which had been the key focus of attention during the Cold War, and they moved toward expeditionary warfare at, out of area operations. And this problem was magnified by strategic cacophony because basically some of the largest countries in Europe are based in Western and Southern Europe, and they have all de-emphasized territorial defense and they focus on expeditionary warfare. Uh, by contrast, you have some countries in Europe that have reinvested in territorial defense capabilities, but these are mostly small countries in Northern and Eastern Europe. So strategic cacophony is in full display here too. And the, the result is that today Europeans lack even the most basic conventional deterrence and defense capabilities. Uh, you have some studies who have already shown this, like uh, studies by the IISS, um, but there was no long-term analysis of the year-to-year -year shift across the whole of Europe of the core capabilities needed for conventional deterrence and defense. Sorry. And this is exactly what we tried to do in the article. So we systematically gathered data from the IISS military balance for the whole period 1990 to 2020. We focused on three specific systems uh, for conventional warfare, namely main battle tanks, armored personal carriers and artillery. And you may ask, why did you focus only on conventional land capabilities? What about air and naval capabilities? That's a fair point because conventional warfare requires more than simply land capabilities, to be sure. However, um, the key point here is that Russia's strategy is specifically aimed at compelling NATO forces in case of conflict to operate in an environment of land warfare with contested air support. And so here land is why land resistance and therefore land capabilities become key. And that's why we focus on this specific weapon system. And if you look at the data, 
I'll be brief here, but we can discuss the details if you want in the Q&A. Look, you take main battle tanks uh, and we divided large, medium and small powers for analytical clarity. If you take all these countries, you see you see a decline by 85 percent from 1990 to 2020. That's huge. You take artillery. Um, they decline over the same time frame by 56 percent. And armed personal carriers similarly decline by 54%. So this is really staggering figures, and it's a massive and severe decline in European capabilities. But in fact, the situation is even worse because Europeans have significant readiness deficiencies. Just to give you an example, uh, the German Parliamentary Commissioner for the Armed Forces concluded in 2018 that the readiness of the Bundeswehr major weapon system is dramatically low. Two small examples, uh, almost 40% of Germany's uh, battle tanks, Leopard 2, were available for use. And less than 50% of its Eurofighters and Tornado combat aircraft were available. So this is the readiness problem. And across Europe, uh, you have actually an additional problem, which is the obsolescence of main battle tanks, which is projected to become ever more challenging in the decades ahead. So, this is if we look at uh, conventional capabilities. But in fact, today, um, there is a growing complexity in weapon systems and the employment of modern weapon systems. Um, effective employment of modern weapon systems is far more challenging today than it was in past eras. This is at least in part because of the immense premium put on what is called C4ISR capabilities. This essentially refers to the information architecture or the nervous systems of modern militaries, uh, where you have interlinked in a whole system, satellites, computer system, armed forces. It's really a system of systems, essentially. And these capabilities are crucial for gathering information about the combatants, and for effectively processing and disseminating that information among the armed forces. And Europeans have profound shortfalls in this domain. Again, the 2011 intervention in Libya showed how reliant Europeans are on US C4ISR capacity. And that was in an intervention in Libya. So if Europeans were to balance Russia autonomously without the US, they would require the development of such C4ASR capabilities, which not only would take a very long time, but would be a very challenging task because Russia is not Libya. Now, what would they have to do? They would have to develop large amounts of these C4ASR systems, like reconnaissance and communication satellites, early warning control aircraft, uh, um, uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance drones, military satellites. So the range of systems is very large. Uh, military satellites are pretty crucial because they allow for communication, navigation, early warning, attack assessment, surveillance, reconnaissance. So these are very complex and crucial capabilities. And if you look at the data, this is the result. You see that Russia enjoys a massive preponderance, quantitative preponderance, in terms of military satellites compared to any other European country. But the, and, and in fact, Brexit with, uh, took out of the EU a lot of these capabilities. But this is only if we look at hardware. Something which is less um, discussed is that it's not only a matter of hardware, is that you need the specialized personnel to operate these C4ISR capabilities. And that's a huge problem for several reasons. 
first of all, you had massive decline in the number of military personnel in the past three decades. Just the total active, active militaries declined by almost 60%. So you would have all the costs involved in paying this additional needed personnel. Uh, but you have another problem, which is that it's increasingly hard to attract personnel for a skilled position in the military. There are very uh, solid studies that show that advanced weapon systems today require skilled and highly trained military personnel, precisely because these are very advanced capabilities. Um, this information architecture is pretty complex. Um, and therefore, it's very difficult to recruit and retain this skilled and highly trained military personnel in the military. Okay, And of course, you have the challenge and the time required to train these people. Barry Posen himself uh, told, uh, wrote about the US that the development of new weapon system and tactics depends on decades of expensively accumulated technological and tactical experience. So, and that's for the US, which is one single country. That would take even longer for, for Europeans because it's a patchwork of countries with different operational cultures, levels of ambitions, different languages, etc. So it's a pretty daunting task. The third challenge is the difficulty of institutionalized military cooperation. Strategic cacophony, so these diverging interests among Europeans have prevented them from developing, and that's a historical fact, from developing an autonomous military planning, command and control structure. Today, there is no autonomous operational headquarter in Europe, uh, autonomous from the US, because of strategic divergences between France, the UK and Germany. But this is history. You may say, well, but if the US withdrew, could Europeans rely on NATO command and control integrated structure without the US? But there are two problems here. First of all, is that historically the US has been <clears throat> the hegemonic power within NATO. And as such, it has helped overcoming coordination problems and collective action problems between Europeans. And because of European strategic cacophony, a US disengagement from NATO would amplify collective action problems and coordination problems within NATO, assuming that NATO actually survives. And the second issue is that one thing is to be in an integrated military structure under the command of the hegemon, the US, and another thing is to be under the command of another European power. It's actually extremely unlikely that any European country would be willing to be under the permanent command of another European country for deterrence and defense. Uh, do you see France being accepting being under the permanent command of Germany, for instance? This is pretty unlikely, and this is true for all European countries. All right, the final challenge is the fragmentation of Europe's defense industrial base, uh, which hinders the capacity of Europeans to produce uh, the defense systems that they would need um, to balance Russia, essentially, uh, without the US. You have fragmentation on both the demand side and the supply side. On the demand side, um, the data show that in the past three decades, Europeans have consistently privileged domestically procured defense equipment over European arms cooperation, and we're talking 80% versus 20%. And the, the reason is mostly national protectionist practices, uh, which remain the dominant driving force in new defense procurement. And this was very well shown by Matt Utley at King's College London um, in a, an excellent study. Uh, you similarly have fragmentation on the supply side. So you have very fragmented, non-competitive European defense and technological industrial base, 
which partly results actually from strategic cacophony. Uh, just to give you an example, we have 60, 16 major military shipyards in the EU versus two in the US. And that's because you have a lot of duplication, inefficiencies and endemic overcapacity in Europe. So, the bottom line of all this is that strategic cacophony and defense capacity shortfalls feed and reinforce one another, and together they impose rigid limits on the capacity of Europeans to achieve strategic autonomy anytime soon. Restraint scholars may advance, again, uh, have advanced some of them, a counter-argument, which is basically to say that, of course, yes, fine, uh, Europe is currently split today by strategic division and severe capacity shortfalls. Okay, but that's today. Um, they argue, or they might argue, that a US withdrawal by delivering such a major shock would do two things. First of all, it would drive European threat perception to heighten. So you would have an intensification of this threat perception vis-a-vis -vis Russia, and all would converge around Russia, essentially. And therefore, that's the second step, because of this heightened threat perception, uh, Europeans would increase their defense investment in order to balance Russia, either in coalition or through the EU. So that would be the counter argument of the restraint camp. Let's evaluate each one of these logical steps in the counter arguments. So let's look at the first logical step in this counter argument, namely that if the US withdraws, this causes European threat perception to heighten and converge around Russia. And let's go back to the table I was showing you uh, on the threat assessments in Europe. This is the three major powers, and then we'll see for the minor, the, the lesser and medium powers. France, Germany, and the UK. Uh, as we saw, France sees Russia as a threat, but other threats are more important. And for Germany and the UK, Russia and other threats have equal significance. If the US pulled out, this is what would likely happen. Germany and the UK would indeed shift one column to the right, meaning that in their view, without the US, NATO would lose complete credibility in terms of conventional deterrence and defense, and therefore um, their threat perception would heighten. They would become more concerned by Russia. Uh, nevertheless, it should be stressed that it's not like the other threats would disappear, so they would still have to grapple with terrorism, with regional instability in the Middle East, with the larger Mediterranean area, and so they would have um, trade-offs in the allocation of their resources between Southern and Eastern Europe, between territorial defense and power projection, and this is also why they are not in the last column of this chart. France, by contrast, is very unlikely to shift column. Um, for France, really, again, because of history, because of the history of France and how it sought to position itself during the Cold War and after the Cold War, and also because of its post-colonial ties, the center of gravity for France is really south of Europe. It's regional stability in Africa and specifically in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's very unlikely that France would move, uh, ramp up Russian uh, threat assessments. And because of these different threat perceptions, the big three would be very unlikely to reach agreement on a common position vis-a-vis -vis Russia if the US withdrew. So to be sure, Germany and the UK might lean toward balancing, but they will still have to grapple with other threats and face uh, trade-offs in their resources. France is very unlikely to provide any substantial contribution 
to a balancing coalition. And in fact, France may even bandwagon with Russia. And this was highlighted uh, in interviews by uh, with senior French defense official who said that actually uh, threats to Europe's southern periphery in Africa, the Middle East, if the US withdrew, they would still be considered much higher priority than Russia. Our vital interests are not threatened by Russia. This is in the word of a senior MOD official. And the situation is even more cacophonic. If you look at the other uh, states, take medium and small states, they would have profoundly different reactions as a function of geographic location, history, etc. The one exception would be these countries in the lost column, uh, Baltics, Finland, Poland, for whom Russia is already the dominant threat. But if you take most of the countries in column one and two, uh, they're very unlikely to revise the threat assessment of Russia. Uh, for them, Russia is not a threat or a secondary threat, and they could actually even become neutral or bandwagon with Moscow. And indeed, even if all countries, all the countries in this table moved Russia up in their threat assessment, the cacophony of threat perception would remain. So let's see what would happen. This is what happens if you have all the countries shifting one column to the right. Well, the cacophony of threat perceptions remains. So the bottom line here is that it's extremely implausible, uh, unlike what restraint scholars argue, that all European states would move Russia up in the ranking of threats. Even if they did, the cacophony of threat perception would remain. And a US withdrawal would therefore not mitigate Europe's strategic cacophony, and it could actually exacerbate it. But let's see the second part of these counter arguments. Uh, the restraint scholars could say, well, yes, okay, but even if threat perceptions do not converge across Europe, it's not a big deal because balancing Russia would not require much effort because Russia is so weak. And again, they always come back to the three indicators of GDP population and defense spending. But in fact, what we try to show in the article is that Russia is a much tougher adversary to match than what restrained scholars seem to believe, and that's true both in the conventional and the nuclear domain. Let's look at the uh, conventional domain. There are three key points to bear in mind. First of all, Russia's defense budget is in fact much higher than what is usually assumed. So Russia pays its soldier and its weapon systems in rubles and not in dollars. And therefore, um, estimates of its military spending <clears throat> that are based on market exchange uh, rates are inaccurate. If you take military spending and use uh, purchasing power parity exchange rate, Russia's effective military expenditure is much higher. So that's an important point. The second point is that precisely given this <clears throat> military spending, in the past decade, Russia has substantially increased uh, its defense capabilities, including C4ISR capabilities. Uh, in the past decade, so if you take from 2015 to 19, the size of the Russian army, just this, uh, increased by almost 25%. And so if you go back to the capabilities that we discussed before, this is the result. This is uh, the preponderance of Russian capabilities vis-a-vis -vis any type of coalition of potential balancers vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia. And these coalitions are based on the table of threat perception that we discussed before. So this is the preponderance of capabilities of uh, Russian main battle tanks vis-a-vis -vis any coalition of European balancers. <clears throat> Sorry, this is 
for um, <clears throat> excuse me in um, armored personal carriers. And you also have preponderance if you look at artillery. Likewise, if you look at total active troops, you have this huge preponderance here too. And this is again for um, the fundamental capabilities for conventional deterrence. But if you go and look at more complex systems, uh, which are key for C4ASR capabilities like military satellites, I just wanted to remind you the huge imbalance in capabilities here too. <clears throat> and the last point to uh, bear in mind is that Russia, and this is often forgotten, it's a simple but key point. Russia gains efficiencies vis-a-vis -vis Europeans because it's a single actor that would face a collective patchwork of countries with diverging interests. And so the bottom line here is that if the US pulled back, a single centralized Russian actor would confront a group of potential European balancers who would have diverging threat perceptions. And because of that, they would have coordination challenges, collective action problems, and this would hamper their capacity to do many things, to devise a common strategy, to share the burdens of defense investment, to rationalize the highly fragmented industrial base, to build integrated command and control structure, and also to sustain, develop, and deploy uh, C4ISR capacity. And you also need to keep in mind the timescales involved. Such a buildup of capabilities would take a very long time. And this is very clearly stated by uh, senior officials in Europe. Just take the German uh, foreign, foreign policy officials who stresses that the whole defense and capability requirements would be so extreme that the upgrade that would be needed to fill the gap if the US completely withdrew is totally off limits for the foreseeable future. This is pretty clear. And I won't go into the detail of nuclear uh, um, realm, but I can get back to it in the Q&A. But essentially, you face the same constraint. You have a major, a massive Russian numerical preponderance in terms of nuclear capabilities. Russia is a single actor facing a patchwork of European actors. And the strategic divergence and capability uh, constraints would hamper the emergence of European nuclear deterrence. I'm happy to say more about it in the Q&A. And so, what are the implications of all this? Ultimately, the notion forwarded by restraint scholars that European countries can easily and quickly balance Russia is ungrounded. In fact, it's based on unfounded optimism. And that's striking. Uh, restraint scholars are self-described realists, but they need to be more realistic. Europe today is characterized by profound strategic cacophony and fundamental defense capacity shortfalls. Therefore, it is today not in a position to autonomously mount a credible deterrent and defense against Russia. This situation is likely to continue for a very long time, even if there were a complete US withdrawal from the continent, and it would all the more so be the case in the event of a partial US withdrawal, which again is a more likely scenario. And so a US pulled back from the continent would leave Europeans increasingly vulnerable to Russian aggression and meddling. It would make institutionalized intra-European defense cooperation much harder, and it would therefore have grave consequence for peace and stability on the continent. And so you may ask, okay, but this is a pretty depressing uh, um, overview that you're giving us, so, but what can Europeans do about it? 
And this, in fact, uh, we are working together with Steve uh, Brooks. We are working on a follow-up article which tries to address exactly this question. We had a very preliminary stage, so we would really welcome any kind of feedback, comment, suggestion that you may have. The, um, and here I'll be very brief, but essentially two things, important things that the Europeans should do, first and foremost, is uh, move beyond wishful thinking. Essentially, wishful thinking has sometimes prevented a sober and empirically grounded analysis of European interests and capabilities. And it is my deep belief that European integration benefits from realistic, hard-nosed assessment more than it benefits from impractical wishful thinking. And the second thing that can be done is to halt the proliferation on unprioritized initiatives. You have so many initiatives within the EU with so many acronyms that it's very hard to just keep track of them. And in fact, this proliferation of initiatives can end up reinforcing rather than taming strategic cacophony, and it can also have little impact on existing capacity shortfalls. So what can be done about it? Uh, well, our suggestion is that Europeans should focus on very few initiatives, but targeted initiatives that adhere to essentially uh, three criteria. The first one is that they should be capabilities that can be developed in the short term, say five years. These capabilities should address existing gaps, of course, and they should be valuable to the US today. But these capabilities should also be useful in case the US pulls back. And so based upon these three criteria, we've tried to identify some potential initiatives. We asked for feedback to 35 European and American scholars and policymakers. And uh, let me note that some of these initiatives already exist, but are scattered through the EU or NATO and other initiatives don't exist yet. And so just to give you a few examples, uh, capability development <clears throat> initiatives would include focusing on military mobility, which is a big problem in Europe, uh, developing a network of special operation forces across Europe, which is useful across the spectrum of conflict, and bolstering cyber and electronic warfare capabilities. We could also think um, potentially of um, some institutional reforms, like creating a new, um, creating a European Security Council, which is something that's been put forward in the literature, and revi revising the Stability and Growth Pact, meaning taking out defense investments from the rigid fiscal constraints of the Stability and Growth Pact. These are just initial preliminary ideas, so we really would welcome uh, your feedback. And before I conclude, I will just um, make some uh, shameless self-promotion, which is that I'm, uh, I'm the director of this European Initiative for Security Studies, which is this network of scholars across Europe who want to um, bolster um, and consolidate security studies in Europe. We have a call for panels and for papers. The deadline is January 30. And so if there's any PhD or postdoc or um, scholar here that would like to apply, we really welcome your uh, panel or paper proposal. And with that, I'll conclude and I very much look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you.